Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. This morning, as I looked out of my kitchen window, I saw two rooks from the rookery at the bottom of the field mobbing a buzzard. A sight that always fascinates me, as buzzards are big and have very sharp beaks and claws, and you would think the odds would be in the buzzard's favour, but the rooks always win. The natural world is fraught with hazards for all species, but the rook-buzzard dynamic is one that has evolved over thousands of years, and it balances out. The crisis our wildlife, both fauna and flora, face today is not the result of evolution. It is man-made. We have systematically disrupted, disturbed and destroyed habitats across the globe, driving species to extinction in our seas, our forests, our plains and our farmland. It is now commonly accepted that we have caused the Anthropocene extinction, the Earth's sixth mass extinction, and it is that which mobilises many to protest, to lobby governments to act or to call out big polluters. While protest is important, we also need information and action, and my two guests today are vital in fulfilling those roles. Megan McCubbin is a zoologist, wildlife TV presenter and author who uses her skills as a science communicator to empower, enthuse and engage everyone about the natural world. Her new book, An Atlas of Endangered Species, is a rallying cry for all of us to sit up and take notice before it's too late. Megan, a very warm welcome to Planet Pod and thank you so much for being with us. Hello, thank you so much for having me. My second guest, Dr John Ewan, has heard the cry of Megan and others and is taking direct action to halt species decline. He's a senior research fellow at ZSL, London Zoo, Institute of Zoology, where he and his colleagues have successfully brought back a number of species from decline, including the very beautiful Guam kingfisher. John, hello and welcome to Planet Pod and thanks so much for joining us. Hi Amanda, thank you very much for having me. This is an enormous subject, so I wonder if we could start with getting a sense of the size of the threat. Megan, in your book, you start by outlining just how big the crisis is. Can you give listeners a sense of what it is that we're up against? Absolutely. Um, So the latest science is that we are losing three species on average every single hour. Um, And previously, the extinction rate was so low. Extinction is very important. In fact, it's, you know, a fundamental part of life on Earth. Things have to, you know, evolve and um, and, and go extinct naturally. That's just always been the case. But when humans have come along and we do what we do best uh, (laughs) by polluting the environment, fragmenting the landscape, uh, directly persecuting the animals that we claim to love, um, then we've created this I- incredible problem. and We are accelerating that extinction rate to somewhere between 1,000 and 10 times faster than the natural rate. Uh, and that's when we're seeing species being lost to extinction before perhaps in some cases we've even had a chance to acknowledge their existence or learn how important they are for the ecosystem. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're losing things at a, an incredibly scary rate. Um, but, you know, we can turn it around, but we've just got to move Move quickly. Yeah. 150 every day, I think, is the stat. I mean, you're three and out. I mean, that is a phenomenal number of species. And as you say, some of those, we almost don't know they're there, do we? Because they're in, you know, deep in the heart of the rainforest or they're part of an ecosystem that we've yet to, to fully understand. Yeah, or, or they're right under our nose. You know, we had a new species of orangutan found only a couple of years ago. So even stuff like our megafauna, we're still not really understanding all of it, which is because we haven't done, you know, um, really high level genetic studies or we haven't understood more about behavior like we're still finding out more even in the last in the last six months new species of sloth has been added so yes it's about the little things it's about the amphibians in the cloud rainforest and about the insects that you know are live on top of one remote mountain but it's also about you know the bigger things too that we're still learning more about and that's what scares me the most is that we're losing things before we understand how important 
they are. Yeah. And you've chosen, I mean, obviously you could have written about hundreds of species, but you've chosen 19 for the book <clears throat> specifically. And um, many, you know, are familiar. And as you've just mentioned, orangutans, I mean, really emblematic of what's happening. And uh, I love that quote where you, from, from, from Rico Jaya, we said, orangutans are a symbol of conservation. By saving the orangutan, we can save the forest and then we can save ourselves. So, so they're hugely... I suppose they're, they're very emotive for people, aren't they? Um, but some of the species you've picked on are, are, are much less well known. Um, and, and frankly, I was quite surprised because you know you put lemurs in there, and I thought I thought lemurs were one of the things that was okay. So how did how did you choose the species that you did choose to focus on? Uh, that was a challenge. That was really <laughs> hard. Um, because sorry, poodles have just arrived, so they are starting to get a bit mental. Um, <laughs> That's okay. We love dogs on the pod. Um, it's great. It was really challenging to choose which species to include in the book. To be honest, I had absolutely no idea whatsoever. Incoming, hello. Sorry, they've just come back in. So, <laughs> um, I, I had no idea what to choose. There was a few that I knew were critical. Um, I knew that I wanted to include a, a, a chapter on sharks. I previously worked with sharks. So, I, I didn't know which species, but I knew there had to be a story on the sharks. I'd worked with lemurs before. I knew, I knew the trouble that lemurs were in. So, I wanted to include those. Um, and then, you know, I, I knew Northern White Rhino had to be one just because it is a very, well, it's become an emblem, I suppose, of, of science against extinction. So um, I, that was just a given as well. That was, what I think, the first chapter I wrote, actually, was, was the Northern White Rhino chapter. Um, but the rest, I, I wanted to learn alongside readers. I wanted to understand more about animals that I hadn't heard of because I knew there would be loads that I hadn't. So I actually put a shout out on Twitter and I said, the only caveat it is that it has to be a globally endangered species. Uh, there is one exception, which is the glow worm in there. And I hope when people read it, they'll understand why that's the exception. Um, but yes, I mean, so I put a shout out on Twitter and I was shocked by the amount of responses I got. I got people all over the world. And then I had to narrow it down. I knew I wanted to do fish. I knew I wanted an amphibian, insect, mm. a couple mammals, birds. And I did want to include plants. So a lady slipper orchid in there, which is an amazing story. Um, about a, a conservationist called Punky in Indonesia and how he's basically single-handedly going up against plant poachers, which is amazing. He's an amazing person. Um, so, yeah, I knew I wanted that diversity and then it had to be kind of spread around the world. So it was really hard. I wanted to write about all of them. Maybe it will be like a second edition, third edition, fourth edition. I don't know. But <laughs> I certainly couldn't write about all the thousands. I think there's over 40,000 on the endangered, well, on the IUCN, you know, um, concern list. So, uh, yeah. That would take me a little while. Yeah, <laughs> forty thousand is a terrifying number. John, how do you, how do you decide at the zoo? Because the work that you've been doing at the zoo has been tremendously successful in actually bringing some species right back from the brink. Um, how do you decide which species that you focus on, and and and, and you know what, what what makes it onto the list? Yeah, a uh, very good question, and and there's lots of different motivations behind it, I guess. Um, for zoos themselves, sometimes just by chance we've got individuals of a species which we've which have been collected in history um, and have ended up becoming rare and so it's just lucky that they've been there uh, the sakura dove which is now extinct in the wild is a good example of that where the first birds which were collected way way back in 1925 uh, were collected by somebody who fancied doves and pigeons uh, and they ended up in collections Four of them got sent across to Europe. The entire global population of Sakara dove stem from those four individual birds. They're now extinct in the wild, and we were trying to work to recover them. So in some, in some cases, it's luck, yeah. and that's what we have. In others, 
you know, we're, we're facing this biodiversity crisis. We're seeing extinction happening in front of our eyes. And we've been able to step in and do something about it right at that last minute. So we go out and we rescue species into captivity um, where extinction is otherwise inevitable. And so we've got examples of that as well, where those species would be lost if we did nothing. Uh, you know, that pressure is going to keep growing, unfortunately. Um, but we are getting some huge success out of doing that type of thing. Beyond that, then, really, it's just a choice of what people would like to conserve, uh, what's what's local. If it's if it's in the UK, then uh, what problems are we facing there? What species are in trouble? What can we do to help? Either uh, ex situ, so in zoos and in captivity and botanic gardens, or ideally in nature, where we can start, start protecting landscapes and doing some more hands-on management for those rare species and recover them in the wild. And that's where there's a really interesting interplay between the work that you know that you talk about in the book, Megan, and, and, and the work that John's doing is that very many of the species you look at, there's attempts, direct attempts aren't there, at, at Indigenous local level to, to preserve those species and support them, protect them. Um, but, you know, we need that vital zoological element as well, don't we? When, when it, we just get to that point of no return and we've eradicated the habitat so greatly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the methods for well, the solutions very much depend on a species by species case. You know, there are no species that are the same with the same kind of requirements. You know, there are some species in the book, for example, the pangolin, the Temenix pangolin um, that I wrote about. That really, they've, they've, we've tried to keep them in captivity before and it just doesn't work. Pangolins are very specific. They need a specific type of ant and termite, depending on the season uh, and, and, and just depending on you know, environmental conditions. And that's obviously something that can't be replicated in the captive environment. So, you know, for conserving things like pangolins, it becomes a lot more difficult. But then for other species, you know, we've seen um, in the book, for example, you've got um, the wild camels and there's a, uh, a kind of a reintroduction centre, captive breeding centre on the border between China and Mongolia that's doing really well. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends on a species by species basis. But we're still learning. This is the thing like this we're having to learn all the time what methods are right and what we should do with certain species and what we shouldn't do with others. Um, but, you know, I think when you're at such a critical uh, time, when you're on such a critical timeline and you don't have much to play with, you've just got to do what you can. You just give it your all and you see what works and hopefully it will. Um, but there's no guarantees and sometimes it's a trial and error thing, but we've got no time to work it out. We've got to just get on with it quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I and I guess, John, for the, the work that you're doing, it's, you know, you've got that combination of kind of long range macro research, which is really important for the sort of understanding in the way that, 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 that Megan's just talked about. But you've also got that really hands on direct action, haven't you, which is a, a, a fascinating combination and, and, and vital when we're talking about kind of hauling species back from from the very brink. Absolutely. I think, I mean, knowing where the species are that are in trouble. Uh, we need that broad focus at looking at the world so we're not dropping the ball. Um, Megan's already pointed out rightly early on that we still do not know enough. I mean, there's a lot out there that we, we're still learning about. Learning is the key as well as action. So, um, again, whether it be ex situ, so bringing species into captivity, or whether it's working on them in the wild, uh, there are substantial challenges that we have faced, hurdles we have to overcome. Um, but they are solvable. This is the thing that I truly believe. Uh, and I don't think any species either deserves or has to go extinct if we choose to keep it extant. And so I think then it just becomes a, 
a, a challenge to us as conservationists, to us as society, um, to governments to resource these things to choose to not let extinction happen, and then it won't. Um, so no matter how hard it is, there will be a solution there. We are quite clever species ourselves, so um, we need to put our brains to that use. Mm. So often, though, the solution is just for us to stop doing things that are directly damaging, isn't it? You know, the, the cutting down of the, of, the, of the forest to grow the palm oil or the, the heavy pollutant of, you know, pollution of, of, of UK rivers. And we were talking recently on the podcast about the appalling state of our, our rivers and our chalk streams. So, so the actual the solutions that we hold in our hands are really quite simple quite a lot of the time. We have the solutions. We've known about what to do for a long time. It's just we are uh, a reactive and not a proactive species. So until it gets to a point where it becomes unlivable for us, uh, then, you know, we kind of sit back and, and, and watch it all unfold. Um, but, you know, it is becoming increasingly unlivable for us and it will continue to do so. Um, so there will become a point when we'll pull our finger out and actually get on with the solutions that we've known about for probably over like around 50 years, if not longer, depending on the solution. Um, and we'll think, oh, why didn't we do this earlier? This was really simple. And look at the difference it made. My goodness, like, that made sense, didn't it? <laughs> um, and then we'll look back and go, and go like, oh, that was a bit stupid about um, You know, so, but yeah, it's just, it's just a, kind of yeah at, 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 at the moment it's just kind of like holding your breath to see how long we're going to go on in this kind of mind frame mindset for and um and and, and when are we finally going to wake up and smell the oil quite literally mm. do you think people are making that link because i think that people will watch some of the programs that you present for example again and they'll say oh it's wonderful and it's beautiful and you know the kangles are fabulous and they'll do that kind of ah oh, sort of moment but do you think they then make that educational link or that intellectual link to say these species aren't just pretty to look at they're vital for the ecosystem they're vital for the balance of nature if we destroy the habitats we ourselves are destroying the planet we live on i sometimes wonder if people just don't make the cause and effect link clearly enough and if we as kind of you know communicators and conservationists fail somehow to explain that you know saving the pangolin isn't the right just the right thing to do it has a really important place in our wider ecosystem that would in turn save us as a species i i, I somehow think we've we do, we're, we're just not doing that. We're, we can't be doing that effectively. Otherwise, we wouldn't carry on as we are. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two answers to that question. Um, I think that in terms of wildlife documentaries, I think the tone and the language has changed significantly in the last 10 years. Um, I mean, since that, you saw that um, it was the Blue Planet, wasn't it, with that um, sperm whale eating that plastic tub. Mm. Uh, and then that caused the outrage and then everyone was against plastic straws. And, you know, the moment Attenborough said, oh, maybe we shouldn't use plastic straws. No one did. And it was brilliant. And it was great to see that kind of unfold. Um, and now we are thinking more critically about plastics. We just need to kind of heighten that message. But I think since that moment, um, I think broadcasters have been more aware of that responsibility. Uh, and we have tried to, to certainly incorporate those messages within within all kinds of programming. I mean, I know I'm a massive advocate for it. If I can get in a conservation message or talk about, you know, the, the wider importance of species in the ecosystem in connection to us, then I absolutely will do it. Um, and, you know, we saw with the latest Wild Isle series, they had a whole sixth episode um, that went out onto iPlayer, that, which was very good and it was very hopeful. Lots of people doing some inspiring things. Been lucky um, since that that episode aired to meet a couple of those people from the Kengons Connect team, um, and and it is brilliant. But we do have to be careful that it doesn't lure us into a false sense of security where we think, oh well, maybe everyone else is doing it. I don't need to worry. Um, we need to still kind of keep on motivating and empowering every person out there to kind of put their hands on the deck and help out. Um, so I think it is changing, and it will continue to change as as we're seeing this um, this 
kind of um kind of develop I suppose but then there is the other thing is that you, it is within messaging if you look for it if you really listen to it we're talking about it all the time much more so than we ever have been before and I think there is this disconnect like when we watch it, a David Attenborough documentary or Spring Watch or whatever it is we're in it because it's beautiful like there's mindfulness moments a bit of behavior whatever it is that stands out to you we watch it because it helps our mental health and then when you're actually confronted with actually you know, our, our country is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world and we're losing all these species and everything. That can be quite a hard pill to swallow. So sometimes we kind of, and I, I sometimes do it when times are tough, when I need to switch off to it. Sometimes ignorance can be bliss, but we've got to harness that connection again and, 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 and show people that, yes, you might be one person, but you can help. So it's about reconnecting and re-engaging people into that conversation, but also de- uh, delivering that message in a more accessible um punchy way whilst offering the solutions i think it's also nice to have a diversity of messages in there as well i mean one thing that's also quite overwhelming for an audience is uh the dire state of our world uh, and of biodiversity and and some of the the problems the solutions are maybe theoretically easy but socially uh challenging uh and and it gets very hard for people to know what to do. And I think then again, that there are multiple different scales that people can act, uh, whether that is doing something different in your garden. I love this idea of not mowing your lawns in May. Uh, fantastic, right? Like little things that can actually have real, um, make real impact. And, and so the work, um, even if it goes up to a, a, a extinct in the wild species that we hold in our zoos, the, the management and recovery of those species is very hands on micromanagement is very possible to do even in the face of this this global catastrophe doesn't mean we can't ignore that and we do need to deal with it but we can deal with it on lots of different scales and give people um hope but also courage and also um recognition or or reward for doing something that they can see that it's making a difference mm-hmm. I, I would completely agree with that and uh and, and I think having it at a micro level really helps people engage. What about zoos as educators? Because, you know, are perhaps the, if people might not have been to the zoo for a while, they may carry a slightly less positive view of what a zoo is. And this kind of, you know, the anti-zoo message of is we shouldn't put animals in cages and things. Tell me about the changing role of zoos as communicating this vital need to conserve species and understand species. Yeah, I mean, I think zoos perform lots of roles for society and uh, society or some aspect parts of society may agree more or less with some of those different roles. But one which I think is critically important and often not well recognized is the conservation role that they play. Uh, and uh, for the work that I do, it's no, nowhere more obvious than those species which are extinct in the wild. And um, so these species have been lost from nature and we only have them. Extinction has been prevented because they are under human care in zoos, aquariums, or botanic gardens. Uh, and so there's a, there's a huge role that these institutions play in preventing extinction. Uh, there's a huge role that they play in studying these species and working hard to recover them into the wild and in educating people and giving people the opportunity to learn about them. Uh, I always say that we can do better and we need to do better. So I think zoos have, have, uh, started saying and trying to promote the conservation message um maybe more quickly than the actual conservation work that they were doing but that is rapidly changing and places like zsl i think are doing a a fantastic job at working to prevent biodiversity loss 
tell us how it actually works. So you've got your, you, you know, you've got your Guam kingfisher or you've got your fabulous dove. What, what do you actually do to get it from being safe in the zoo as a breeding species to get it back into the wild? Because then there's a lovely bit in Megan's book about, about the, about the, the, um, the mussels and the, and how that, you know, how they're being tagged in the riverbed and things. But how, how do you, how do you do it? And how do you then track the success of that? And how do you stop those species? There's lots of questions in one here. Sorry, but how do you do it? How do you track this? How do you track it? And how do you then stop it from reverting back to a point of extinction? Well, I think Megan said it earlier, which is very true, that each of these species uh, is unique and they often have a different set of challenges uh, which caused the original problem in the wild. Uh, they each have a unique set of challenges for providing sufficient captive care and then for the potential for wild recovery. And so, again, it's problem solving. It's getting in there and, and using what we're good at doing to figure out what needs to happen to provide adequate care, um, to have healthy, vibrant populations in captivity, uh, producing enough individuals that you can safely harvest from that captive stock to restore wild populations. Equally, I mean, things haven't stopped going wrong in nature just because these things have been rescued into captivity or were lucky enough to be there in the first place. And so you've got a lot of work to do trying to figure out whether you can reintroduce these species back to where they were once found because those original drivers of extinction have been removed and that that release habitat has been restored or that we have to be a bit more brave and maybe look beyond where they were once found and find suitable habitat elsewhere where we could put them and that they would thrive without causing a problem to those environments. Okay. So you're you're finding a suitable habitat. And, and, and is it a case that sometimes they go to somewhere different because there's an in, a, a predator that's now endemic in the original habitat or, you know? Absolutely. How, I, I think, I mean, one good example of that is, is the sea hick or the Guam kingfisher that we've mentioned before. Um, Guam is a, is a very sad story of, of an ecological collapse that occurred because there was an accidental introduction of a non-native predator. That was the brown tree snake. That brown tree snake established on Guam at the end of World War II. It was an accidental introduction. It slowly spread and took over the island and decimated the avifauna. So there were not multiple extinctions. Two bird species were successfully rescued into captivity. They became extinct in the wild. One was the sea hick, the Guam kingfisher. The other was the Guam rail or the cocoa. Snakes are still present there. We cannot put these birds back on Guam yet until we get that snake problem sorted. So with the cocoa, which has been successfully downlisted from extinct in the wild, a population was established in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands on Rotor Island, further north of Guam and on a small offshore island just off the coast of Guam. Unfortunately, recently, snakes have invaded that island, so that population uh, is in a bit of trouble. Um, when it comes to the sea hick, our plans were found an island, which is quite a long way away from Guam. It's called Palmyra Atoll, uh, and we're in the process of trying to move birds there this year to establish the first wild population since the 1980s when they were rescued into captivity. Okay. So this feels quite interventionist, doesn't it? I mean, and I, I guess critics would say, you know, it's like my buzzers and my, uh, my rooks, you know, it's just, it's the way things go. You know, if a, if a predator moves in and we lose a species, that's just so be it. That's how, how, how life, how life is. How do you get around that kind of interventionist, you're playing God, playing with nature argument? <laughs> 
I think it's human intervention, uh, our society, our way of life that's caused the problem that the planet is facing. So why isn't it that our interventions can reverse that and do some good? And that certainly got, got me into this career was seeing people go out and stop extinctions right at the edge of uh, extinction and have successful recovery. That inspired me. That ability to go in and do something and reverse extinction uh, was incredibly powerful and put me into the career that I've got. Uh, so I'm fully supportive of doing that. Um, I, I don't think any humans manipulate and change and do things for their benefit. Why can't we manipulate and change and do things for the benefit of nature? Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Megan, have you got a favourite species um, that you've written about in the book, or a favourite species that didn't make it into the didn't make it didn't make the cut? I mean, that you and that's a horrible question, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm very fickle in that way. In that, my favourite will be whatever I've just worked on or whatever I've just seen, and I'm so I'm terrible with favourite questions because I'm genuinely so fascinated by everything, and I'm more fascinated by the connections between it as opposed to just you know, the species on its own. I mean, initially when I was younger, it was the species on their own. It was the, you know, the woodlouse out in the back of the garden or a butterfly that I'd found. And that'd be like, oh, it's a butterfly, it's really cool. But then as I've kind of matured into my, um, into a more scientific brain, I suppose, I'm more interested in about its ecology, like what's it eating and how does that impact other things? And like, you know, you start asking more questions, albeit some of them are still childlike, because you have to ask childlike questions, I think, as a scientist. Um, it's how we get the answers that we're, we're all curious about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the sunflower sea star was perhaps the most surprising because it experienced such a decline in the space of three years. So from 2013 onwards, it experienced a decline of 90.6%, which was an equivalent to a 5.75 million individual decline. So they used to be as common as robins, is what divers used to say. Um, and sunflower sea star was like their equivalent of going to Africa and seeing an elephant. It was like the megafauna of the sea off the coast of America. Um, and, and they just disappeared. And it's all due to a warming event that caused uh, a, an increase in the sea star wasting syndrome disease, uh, which is a horrible, horrible thing where lesions form on the body. It impacts their hydrovascular system. So they're unable to move and therefore feed themselves. Um, and they, their limbs essentially fall off and it looks like they're melting the seafloor it's really really nasty events um, and we're going to see increased warming events and and it's not um, species specific so you know sunflower sea star was one that was hit hardest at that time period but there are other sea star species that will will, will inevitably unfortunately face the same threat but they're, they're doing captive breeding and in lab and um that seems to be good well it's, it's had its challenges because you can't tag a sea star because they just eject their limb and, and grow a new one. So you can't tag them very easily um, to follow them in the wild. And then they had to find a healthy one to move back to the lab so they could start um, you know, breeding from it. Um, and, and, and luckily, they've managed to do so. They haven't, I don't think, yet been released, but it, it shouldn't be too far along. Um, so that was, you know, that was a really surprising one. But I think in terms of an issue that came to light, and it'd be interesting, I, I thought I'd mention this quickly, and it'd be interesting to know John's take on it as well. Um, was the issue of funding. So a lot of the scientists that I spoke to were, were sent out because they think there's a species out there that might be on the brink. Can you go and find out if it is? So they go out there for three years, they do their PhD study, they find, yes, the species on the brink, and then the, the funding is pulled. 
or perhaps you know you start a PhD on something else and it turns out to be an entirely different problem and then the funding is pulled because ultimately funding goes to these new shiny projects of okay can we list something as endangered because that's quite cool and that's interesting for us but then actually the, there's such a lack of long-term funding so scientists invest their career into these species and then all of a sudden they're being told they've got to go because there's no money because something new and flashier has come along and then they have to leave that species on the brink of extinction without any support and now that is a huge problem for me now in, in the face of conservation is this allocation of funding and where we're really investing the money yeah i mean i i agree with that I, i've looked at it um slightly from a different angle where i think often we know that these species are going to be in danger of extinction and they're threatened and that's why we're going out and doing our studies on them i think we need to be far more strategic in the type of work that we're doing and whether we're going out to monitor the current situation or monitor trends in biodiversity or start focusing on action for recovery. Uh, equally, we need to recognise right from the get-go that no species, or very few of them, are going to be recovered within the life of a PhD or within the life of a three-year grant. And so we should know that at the start, and we should be prioritising long-term resource um, to manage recovery of species right from the start. And we do not do that. So as a conservation sector, I think we need to be smarter but also we need to encourage governments, we need to encourage industry to know that recovery of species is not a quick fix, it's a long-term game, uh, and that they should be willing to invest to see it happen because it will work. It won't work if we get three-year bursts of money. It will work if we get decades of money uh, because we can problem-solve and do stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and work, work on that recovery because wouldn't it be great in 100 years if there was no need for zoos because the habitat was healthy and flourishing and everything mm. could live in the wild? I mean, that's what ultimately we all need to work towards, in, in my mm. opinion. Yeah, and and I think funding is, an, you're, you're absolutely right, funding is a key issue, isn't it? And I know it's an issue for ZSL and I know you have fundraising programmes and things, but 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 this is a this is more of a strategic governmental, intergovernmental issue, isn't it? And we should be putting pressure on our governments to put pressure on some of those big polluters so we actually have a polluter pays approach where we can then divert some of that money to funding and supporting conservation programmes and, you know, reintroduction programmes and all of those things, as well as drawing attention to the damage that some big multinationals or small organizations are doing so it's a kind of multi it's a multi-layered conversation isn't it i think and so i mean i think that honestly the amount of money we're talking is also not massive compared to what governments choose to invest funds in and so i think we can do a lot for biodiversity con converse, conservation um, with just some more st strategic placement of funds uh, so I, I don't agree either with there's not enough money out there to save all biodiversity. I think there is. It's just choice. And people currently, or governments and industry, are choosing to spend their money elsewhere. Sort of investing in coal mines that might help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, as you said, things that we can do on a small local level and things that we can do to preserve the, the habitat. Because we know that, you I mean, we've been talking about some really big kind of, uh, I feel like, sort of, you know, emblematic species like orangutans. But there's lots of things that we can do just here in our back gardens, in our farmland, to conserve habitats, to improve habitats, to keep species conservation for, you know, just locally at a very micro level. So, John, I probably have to ask you the totally unfair question, and I know you're not allowed favourites, but do, do you have a favourite or is there something that's very special to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, like Megan said before, it's very hard to choose a, a favourite. I think all of these species are special and they all need our help and they're all fascinating for whatever reasons cause their rarity or... Um, or their ecology biology. But if I had to have a special one, 
then I suspect it would be the, the hihi, which is a, a small passerine endemic to New Zealand. Um, and that is because that's where I started my career way, way, way back in the early 1990s now. Uh, and so I got involved with the conservation project, reintroducing that bird to another offshore island off the north of New Zealand. Uh, and I've never stopped working on them since. So, what are they like, hihis? Uh, they're a beautiful bird. Uh, so the males in particular are very striking in their plumage, which is quite unusual for a, an isolated island avifauna, that you've got these bright colours, males with jet black head, they've got these white ear tufts, which they can erect and display, so they really fan them out. They've got bright yellow shoulders and wings, uh, and they use those in, in displays, aggressive displays with other males and also in courtship displays with females. Um, they're a small passerine, probably about the size of a starling, a European starling. Um, but their story is one which is really familiar, right, for, for isolated island archipelagos around the world. Um, they were once common, but as soon as humans arrived, things changed. Um, this has all happened quite recently. So New Zealand, human occupation of New Zealand is, is relatively recent. So we've got a very good record of what's happened. So it's a country where there's a very high extinction rate, a very high percentage of what's remaining is very threatened. Ihi is a classic example of it. They were found throughout the northern half of the island. And by the 1890s, have been lost from everywhere except for a small, single offshore island population. Uh, and beginning in the 1980s, we've been working with that bird to try and recover it, try and uh, reintroduce it to parts of its former range. And we're getting there. I mean, we're up to seven reintroduced populations now. Uh, we've created a population which is as many hundreds of birds larger. It's pretty intensive hands-on management, but it is working. Brilliant. Great. It's fantastic to have a success story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Megan, before we go, just tell us a tiny bit about glowworms. It, depending where you live, you might be in with the chance of seeing glowworms. Um, they are probably quite tricky to see when they're not glowing. Um, they look kind of like a rugged woodlouse, I suppose. They're not necessarily the most attractive insects. Um, but then the moment that they produce light is the most fantastic thing. And there's a real big difference between bioluminescence, which glowworms are, and biofluorescence. So a biofluorescent animal um, is, is kind of something that can absorb light and re-emit it. But a bioluminescent animal is something which creates its own light. And it's this chemical reaction involving a luciferin enzyme. But I won't get that geeky on you. Um, and, and basically, yeah, they, they do this chemical reaction in, in, in their lower abdomen. And it creates this light. And the females are the ones which produce light. They're also, the females are flightless. And what they have to do is they need long grass. So they go right up to the top of you know long grass meadows where they start shining to attract males that come in. And males can fly, albeit not very well they're a bit clumsy flyers and they never move further from a few meters within their their short kind of lifespan as adults um and and yeah so the males all flock and, and then they mate and the cycle goes round again but it's if you have and see glowworms in the uk you're incredibly lucky because they are increasingly rarer with anthropogenic light pollution causing massive issues and then just the loss of habitat we've, we've lost all of our meadows we've lost all of our grasslands um we're obsessed with manicured lawns and mowing um, which is the bane of my life. Um, you know, it, it, it's quite ugly as a monoculture, I think. It's fine for if you want a couple of football fields, sure. But what about the edges? Leave it wild, leave it colourful, full of wildflowers, for pollinators and glowworms and stuff. And and, and then ultimately we're, we're improving, you know, the health of wildlife as well as our mental health in many ways. 
Um, but yeah, if you if you leave, you know, if you if you are in an area where there happens to be glowworms for your garden, what you want is a mixed length of lawn. So glowworms like tall grasses so that the females can shine at the top of them. They also like some medium grasses, which is where the young prosper. So you know, the more variety you have in your garden of habitats, the more kind of species that you'll be able to encourage in. If you've got glowworms in your garden. Very jealous. I don't think I've got them in my garden, but I know my local conservation group have an annual glowworm work walk and it's due quite soon. So I will report back to listeners oh, to see if we actually yeah. see any glowworms in my bit of Suffolk. So, uh, and they're very welcome to my garden. The grass is more than knee high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. And there is a reintroduction project that's, um, that's kind of just started. So fingers crossed there'll be glowing in more people's uh, gardens. Thank you both so much. Absolutely fascinating. We could talk about this forever. Um, I really should ask you, what would you, what would you, I mean, apart from not cutting the grass, which is a, the best call of all, what would you ask Planet Pod listeners to do? What can they do actively to, 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 to support and engage with, with um, you know, preventing extinction of species? From my perspective, use your voice. I mean, I've said manage your garden for wildlife. I've said put in a wildlife pond. I've said go out and volunteer a hundred times. And I will continue to say that because they're all very important things. However, I'm getting to the point now where I've, I've said it a hundred times. And, and I think the most important thing we can do is to use our voice and stand up and be counted. You know, if there's a biodiversity march going on in London, go there and be counted. If there's, a, if there's an issue going on um, about your local habitat, join a community conservation group and, and, and do something about it. Use your voice, contact your MP. It's the biggest thing we can all do is hold those responsible to account. So let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And John? Yeah, no, I agree with everything that Megan said. I think on top of that, again, with this, this focus on species which are extinct in the wild and the role that zoos and aquariums and botanic gardens play, go and visit them. There'll, there'll be one nearby you. Ask them what species they have there, which are either extinct in the wild or critically endangered or endangered. But beyond that, ask them what they're doing about it and, and try and understand and learn. Maybe put some gentle pressure on them to, to do more. Uh, all these species that we have are still very precarious in, in zoos and aquariums and botanic gardens. So more work needs to be done. Uh, ask how you can get involved because all these programs, you can get involved either at the zoo or somewhere in nature. Absolutely. Action and communication and speaking out are vital. A huge thank you. Megan and John for being with us. Fascinating and, and, and for me, a wonderful way to start the week. And, you know, I would say to, to listeners, do buy Megan's book. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, it's beautiful to read and to hold and to look at, um, but it's also uplifting and inspiring. So please go out and buy it. Please buy it from your local bookshop or from the Hive online rather than a, another large virtual retailer. Um, we need to support bookstores. And, and if you haven't been to the zoo recently, to ZSL, to London Zoo, can I suggest you go? Because I was overwhelmed when I went. It's nothing like it was when I was a kid. And it's an extraordinary and fabulous place. So very big thank you to to John and colleagues at the zoo for all the work that you're doing. Um, thank you to to Beth and Jim, my producer and executive producer, and thank you Planet Pod listeners for listening. And goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.